Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Auckland Museum on a busy school holiday afternoon. The high floor of the marble grand foyer echoes the cries of excited kids as they move from one gallery to the next, exploring the items and displays that tell stories of the land, wildlife and people of Aotearoa. Items carefully laid out in clear perspex boxes with placards. Or birds and animals arranged as if they're strolling through a forest, looking ready to step out of the cabinet and continue their day. As for most museums, this is the bit we get to see. But there is much, much more going on behind the scenes. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, Ko Clerk and Canon I'm excited to be back, and today, a story about research into some of our feathered friends. Of course, earlier this week saw the crowning of the P. Wow Wow, or Tuke, or Rock Wren, as Bird of the Year for 2022. Congratulations to this plucky little underbird, Aotearoa's only true alpine bird. It's part of an ancient and endemic lineage of which only the Titi Paunamu rifleman and the rock wren remain. Like other years, the competition again brought drama. It's a major controversy in one of the country's biggest elections. The two-time champion Kakapo has been barred from the ballot. A plethora of fresh bird memes and some excellent bird impressions. So my seabird sounds like a cackling nightmare. It goes like... (laughs) Not bad, hey? But the whole point of this annual competition is to introduce us to native birds and to highlight just how threatened many of them are. Which brings us back to Auckland Museum and to this guy. So my name is Dr Matt Rayner, I'm the Curator of Land Vertebrates at Auckland Museum. And if you weren't sure what a curator does... Uh, We curate stuff. (laughs) We look after collections and we tell the scientific stories of collections. And then there's the research. Quite a reasonable proportion of our job is our own research programme to work on various aspects of animal zoology, taxonomy, and in my case, conservation ecology. So as curator, Matt works on both sides. He's helping to decide what we, the public, sees out on display. But he's also doing research in his own chosen field. So my specialist as a scientist is ornithology. So I work on birds, and my particular passion and interest for the last 20 years has been seabirds, because we've got a, a huge, diverse community of them in New Zealand. We've left the bustle and excited children behind. Matt has taken me to the staff area near the southern entrance, up some stairs and through a swipe door to where he spends a lot of his time. Right now we're standing in the uh, collection store for the Land Vertebrates collection. So it's a, a very large space filled with lots of interesting things. 
Just a quick aside, a land vertebrate is anything that breeds on land and has a backbone. So includes turtles, doesn't include dolphins. The collection store is temperature and humidity controlled, and it's full of shelves and massive locker-like containers on tracks to make them easy to move around. But the first thing I spot when I walk in is the peacock and horse's head out on a workbench. So things are out on the working benches, being processed and ready to go. If we, should we come down here? Then Matt walks me down to the end of the room. Oh, wow. I'll let Matt describe what I'm looking at. We're in a, a special area up the back of the storeroom and we've got a long corridor with uh, wire grids on the walls and mounted on those grids are an assortment of of reindeer, caribou, rhinoceros, large animal heads and skeletons. <laughs> a menagerie. Uh, a menagerie. There's a cow skeleton, uh, a whole assortment of large specimens um, that have found their home in this particular part of the collection. Looks like some more down the back, or is there's that ostrich? There's some more skeletons, yes. Uh, there's some large moor skeletons and ostrich skeletons, a, a cassowary, emperor penguins, all sorts of large, curious objects. So with this crazy backdrop of land vertebrates, Matt tells me what he's been working on in relation to seabirds. And I started out my career using micro-tracking technology to figure out where they go, and that was just incredible. And I've looked at how predators affect seabirds. But in the last sort of 10 years, particularly working in the Gulf and with relevance you know, to, to uh, our beautiful area up here in um, Tamaki Makaro, I've become interested and concerned about what's going on with, with these birds in, in, the, in the Hauraki Gulf and the environmental changes in the Gulf across the board that... You know, we're seeing coming through the news media, and um, but how that's impacting seabirds at sort of the top of the food chain. Matt says the use of geotracking from the early 2000s has given researchers a lot of information about seabirds. So it's been incredibly powerful to to show us the vast scale of movement of some of these species across the Pacific and how how seabirds are interconnecting New Zealand with the rest of, of the Pacific Ocean. And also those, at the same time, how climatic effects that are impacting the, the globe are in affecting our species that breed here. But it's the wealth of information stored in these lockers in the Auckland Museum that Matt is hoping will tell us a lot more about what's been happening with these birds. One of the key issues of figuring out how environmental change is affecting seabirds is they haven't been particularly well studied over a long period of time. You know, many of our land birds have been counted for decades, whereas we're just catching up with many of the seabird species. We don't have long-term data records going back to the early 1900s. So we've been using a technique uh, that involves stable isotope analysis that's increasingly been used by ecologists to look at change in ecosystems over time. So with seabirds, you can look at stable isotopes of their tissue to look at change in diet and foraging habitat over a long period. Of course, museums are really useful for that because we've got long-term collections of species going back you know, to the 1800s or even beyond that you can take tissue samples from. So it's, it's a really useful technique to look at change. We'll get back to the isotope analysis and findings in a bit. But first, Matt tells me about the birds he was looking at. Yeah, so I was really interested in change within the Hauraki Gulf of species that are resident here. So in the Gulf, we've got there's two types of seabirds. There's the birds that the migrants, the, the titi, the sooty shield, the um, cook's petrel, black petrel. 
at the end of their breeding season they leave, they go off to the far side of the Pacific, so they're impacted widely in that area. But there's also species that are resident year-round, so your shags, your penguins, your terns, gulls, they don't go anywhere, and they're really useful to look at how local change in the environment impacts these species. So I've been focusing on those local breeding species. How many species of seabirds do you find in the Hauraki Gulf? Well, it's, yeah, it's incredibly diverse. Um, in terms of species that breed there, it's 27 species, which is actually a really large number. It's up there in terms of the highest, highest breeding population in New Zealand, you know, comparable to the Chatham Islands, the Subantarctic Islands, the Kermadex. Uh, but there's over 80 species have been sighted in the Gulf. And seabirds in general, true seabirds, are quite a small group. It's only about just over 300 species globally. So, yeah, the Gulf is an incredible, incredible area for seabirds. A lot of people who don't go out on the water may not be aware of that, but, you know, it's just an incredible habitat. Of those locals, there were five species they focused on. So we investigated two, two cormorants or shags, pied shag and the spotted shag, parekereka, uh, kurora, the little blue penguin, tara, the white-fronted tern, and the red-billed gull. And how do you go about that then? You, you're going to go to one of these giant lockers and pull out a drawer and take out a skin of a bird that's been collected from yeah, years so before? We, we collected, first of all, in recent times, we've been collecting feather samples from birds we've been handling in the field or collected from colonies. So we collect that feather tissue. Those feathers have got uh, stable isotopes of carbon and nitrogen in them that we can analyse. But then we came to the collections here and the other major collections around Aotearoa and we sample from the skins. So we collect those, that feather tissue from those skins, collect it at a certain date, uh, and that gives us a historical record of what's been going on in the past. But we could have a look. Yeah, let's do that. All right, cool. A whiff of camphor hits me as Matt swings the door open. This is a remnant of the old days when they used this to keep bugs out of the collection. He says they use other methods to protect the specimens these days. It's not unpleasant, but it does add to the overall atmosphere of dealing with old things. Okay, what are we looking at here? So, uh, most of our collections, natural sciences collections in the museum, over 98, 99% are behind the scenes. They're not taxidermied like the typical birds you see uh, out on the floor for the public. These are uh, research specimens to be used for scientific research or for uh, artists to get an idea of feather coloration or a whole bunch of different uses. Um, so they tend to remain out of sight, but not out of mind. Here we have a tray of study skins of Phallococorax punctatus, spotted shag. And that's one of the species that this isotope study looked at. So uh, for those who haven't seen study skins before, it's a taxidermied uh, a tray with white paper and you've got these beautiful spotted shags um, that are laid out flat, taxidermied in a very flat position so they can fit onto trays. Um, and pretty much in the form uh, that they were when they were first collected, except that they're stuffed, laid out. Yeah, bellies upwards. Bellies upwards with beautiful little labels on them, 
most importantly for a museum specimen, detailing what is this specimen, what date it was collected, so the when and where. So this uh, one... So if we look at here, we see this phallic acrox punctatus was collected in the Hodaki Gulf at the Noises Islands, and it was collected in... Well, it's not on the label, but it'll be in the record for sure. 1913, pretty sure this exact specimen was collected. It's when most of the noisy specimens were collected. So it's over 110 years old. And it's not the only one. Got over 25 um, study skins of spotted shags, but as you can see, there's a whole, within this giant cabinet, there's a whole bunch of different species of, of study skins of different shag species. Pa-reka-reka spotted shag are found across the South Island and off the coast of Wellington. But in Tikapo Moana, the Hauraki Gulf, their numbers and distribution has seriously declined. They're pretty much reduced to one last stronghold, Tarahiki or Shag Island, off the east coast of Waiheke Island, with two smaller colonies on Waiheke. This wasn't always the case, as the collected museum specimens show. In life, they're elegant birds. They've got that long slender body and curved neck typical of cormorants. They're grey-blue with darker patches on the underside of the neck and tail and broad white stripes running from above the eye down both sides of the neck. Adult breeding birds have small black spots on their backs and wings that give them their name and the bare facial skin between their eye and bill turns this amazing green-blue colour before the breeding season, like flashy makeup to make their eyes pop. These skins seem a poor echo of what they would have been in life. I find it kind of sad to see them here, laid out flat, bellies up, in a drawer. But it's from these skins, and those from other museums, that Matt has been able to discover a lot about the environment these birds lived in more than a century ago, and how it's changed in the years since. For this isotope study, we removed body feathers from these five different seabird species. Uh, And that gave us a continuum from modern body feathers that we collect off li- collected off living birds or out in the field over the past five years, right back through to our older specimens, which I believe was around in the 1880s, was, was living in the 1880s. So when birds molt, every year birds will get rid of their old coat and put on a new one. As they grow those feathers, whatever they're eating is synthesised into the tissues of those feathers and it leaves an ecological record that we can pick up with stable isotopes. So Matt could essentially see what the birds were eating and the habitat they were living in when the feathers were grown. They analysed a total of 145 feathers. For each of the five different species, they had between 20 to 40 specimens spanning the time period from 2020 back to the 1880s. So we were particularly interested in using the isotopes of nitrogen and isotopes of carbon and the two tell different stories. Uh, nitrogen gives you an indication of the trophic level that the animal is feeding at. So nitrogen accumulates predictively from lower trophic levels, like phytoplankton, to higher trophic levels, fish prey and things like seabirds, larger fish, sharks, whales. So for a predator such as a cormorant here, it's going to give us an indication of the approximate trophic level the birds were feeding at, i.e. what they were feeding on and how that changes over time in response to environmental change or the availability of food. So a drop in nitrogen suggests the birds are moving down the trophic level. Maybe a shift from eating fish to crustaceans? Carbon, on the other hand, doesn't change with what animals are feeding on, but it changes predictably in 
habitat and habitat space. So in the Hauraki Gulf, carbon signatures tend to be enriched in inshore ecosystems and they become um, less enriched in offshore ecosystems. And that's to do with the degree of biological productivity and carbon sequestration that, that goes on in those respective habitats. But then when you study these long-ranging species, there's carbon changes with latitude as well. Once you get below the subtropical front, there's these big changes. So you can, if you're studying things that are foraging a long way from New Zealand, you can see where they go with their carbon signature as well. Which is real neat. I'm always blown away by the power of this kind of isotopic analysis. But for now, Matt is focused on those five species that are Hauraki Gulf residents, including the spotted shags, to figure out just what the carbon and nitrogen isotopes are saying. So they're reliable indicators of how diet changes and how habitat use changes over time, broadly speaking. It's not like these isotopes will tell us what a particular bird was eating as a snack, but it can give researchers an overview of where they were and the quality of the food they were eating. Are they feeding in shallow waters on reefs or are they feeding more offshore um, in the water column? And did you see a change across time? Yeah, we did, but not what we expected. So there have been studies like this done for high seas seabird communities. And across the board, they've shown seabirds in general, with the impact of high seas fisheries, they've been feeding down food webs. So their nitrogen signature has declined a lot over a long period of time. We didn't see that for the Haraki Gulf seabirds. Spotted shags were the only species of five that showed a decline in the trophic level of what they're feeding on. There's been some impact on, on their diet. But there was a big change in some of the carbon signatures, particularly for the two cormorants, the pied and spotted shags, and the korora, the little blue penguin. These signatures indicate that the birds have moved from inshore feeding habitats and been forced offshore over time. And sort of we conclude, you know, you make these conclusions and study looking at what's been going on in the Gulf, that there's, there's huge impacts on the inshore habitats in the Gulf from a whole range of factors, from uh, sedimentation, pollution, overfishing, destruction of benthic habitat um, that's, that's pushed these birds offshore. So that was the conclusion of, of the study. There are still some gaps in the knowledge. Uh, we know seabird populations in the Gulf have declined. I mean, they've declined, but since human arrival, they've declined by over 65%. Even in the last 20 years, we're seeing big declines in species. So possibly, you know, birds are moving offshore. Um, there's less food. Their populations are declining. But because there's less competition, they're just feeding on the same things, but in different habitats. We don't know. There's so many unanswered questions. But we do know that there's a problem. There's a big problem in the Gulf with these seabird populations. And, of course, also bear in mind, you know, the ecosystem is like a big interconnected Jenga tower. You know, there's all these, there's all these pieces. And as we have these environmental impacts and you start pulling blocks, it just takes something like climate change or something like a La Nina heat wave to really push these, these species over the edge. Certainly last year with the marine heatwave, there were big impacts on the species that are being studied. You might remember from a previous episode that we learned about some of these impacts from Eden Whitehead, who's researching some seabirds in the Hauraki Gulf. But, Matt says, surveys of still other species show that it's a widespread problem. White-fronted turn surveys with the Northern New Zealand Seabird Trust last year, a 50% reduction in even breeding by the birds. These birds, Parekareka, the spotted shag, they have uh, 
they breed twice a year, once in summer, once in winter. Last season in the marine heatwave, they didn't breed at all in summer. And there's only 300 pairs of these birds left in the Gulf, and they're genetically distinct. I guess these uh, anthropogenically induced things like heatwaves are just a, a, just another pushing point, another, another impact on a system that's already damaged. I mean, seabirds in general, these seabirds are quite resilient. You've already shown across time they change their habitat. If they need to, yeah. they'll adapt. Incredibly resilient and flexible. They, you know, they've adapted, many species have adapted. They travel thousands of kilometres in a single foraging trip for a chick. They can really adapt to different environments, but it's just accumulation of little impacts can slowly start to weigh on populations. And we're, we're seeing that in the Gulf for sure. We're seeing declines across many species. And, and you know... I talk to friends who, you know, I talk to friends who are fishers or people who have been going out on the Gulf for a long time, and, and even the public noticed the difference. You know, oh, when I was a kid, there were tons of red-billed gulls or tons of terns. You don't see those turn those kawaii birds anymore. You know, that sort of thing. There's, there's been big declines. It's a real worry. And it'll come as no surprise what or who is behind all these changes. NIWA have done a, there was a big modelling paper that looked at the Hauraki Gulf ecosystem changed and created models for that in different time periods from um, 1,000 years ago through to arrival of people, through to arrival of Europeans. And that, that using, obviously, uh, modern models were more reliable because they had empirical data, but using archaeological records, oral histories. And they've shown, you know, massive changes to the Gulf since, since human arrival to the structure of the Gulf ecosystem, you know, an ecosystem dominated by cetaceans, seals and seabirds, top predators. Today that's not the case. Today it's an ecosystem dominated by phytoplankton, crustaceans, uh, and also generalist species like snapper, which are kind of like the tuis of the ocean. It's quite a flexible generalist sort of species that can adapt to a broad range of habitats. Yeah, so big, big change. But that, the point is um, that change is ongoing. We're not... You know, New Zealand is a place of extinction. We haven't left that behind. Everything, things are still declining. You know, seabirds is, and kiwi on the mainland where it's not protected. <laughs> still going downhill. Yeah, the impacts are still happening. And we still don't have marine protection in the Gulf. So don't get me started on that. Let's get started on uh, that. Well, it's um, important. It's actually important, right? Because, you know, the, the factors that are impacting seabirds are impacts to foraging habitat, benthic structure, destruction of small fish populations and all of that is related to over harvesting be that uh, commercial fisheries recreational fisheries dredging of habitat destruction of benthic structure sedimentation pollution Um, so until we start protecting habitats on a large scale and allowing ecosystems to flourish and grow we're not going to see the stabilization of things like seabirds they're going to continue to struggle Marine protected areas are zones in the ocean where activities such as fishing or mining are strictly controlled or banned. The definition of protection varies across and sometimes within different countries. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, there are a few different levels of protection. For example, you can get marine reserves where there's a ban on all fishing. There's benthic protection areas with a ban on bottom trawling and dredging. And Ma Tai Tai reserves where there's a ban on commercial fishing. 
After numerous reports outlined the serious decline in the state of the Hauraki Gulf, in June 2021, a new strategy called Revitalising the Gulf was launched by the government. As part of this, there's a plan to establish 12 new high protection areas and five seafloor protection areas through legislation by 2024. Public feedback on the plan has just closed. Matt would love to see more marine protected areas and is working to make that happen. In particular, he's involved in a project hoping to establish a community-led 70 kilometre squared marine reserve around the Noises Islands. It's a partnership between the Noises Trust, Auckland Museum, the University of Auckland and Natai Kitamaki. And it involves monitoring studies and community-led conservation and advocacy. Of course, for this project... Matt will be looking out for the birds. Why do I work on seabirds? Because mm. um, they're amazing. They're just incredible. Like the species I started working on, uh, Cook's petrel for my PhD, they, they breed on Tihoturu or Toy in the Hauraki Gulf up in the mountains. And then they fly two to 3,000 k out to sea when they're feeding. And then at the end of the breeding season, they fly all the way to the North Pacific, north of Hawaii and spend the winter there. And they do that every single year. They're just, their biology is amazing. They only come ashore at night and they nest in burrows and they nest in exciting places, cloudy covered peaks. Um, and they're poorly known. Like a, it's, it's interesting working on species that we just know so little about them. You know, we, we, for many species, we, we don't know how many there are, which is just crazy. So it's really exciting to work in that space where there's still a lot of important work to do. Thanks to Dr Matt Rayner, curator of land vertebrates at the Auckland War Memorial Museum. This episode was produced by Liz Garten and me, Claire Kincannon. Ellen Rikers is the Our Changing World's assistant producer. And a massive thanks to both Liz and Ellen for keeping the show coming out over the last few weeks while I was busy regrowing some bones. Sound engineering for this episode was by Phil Benj, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of Podcasts and Series. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworlds for photos and links, as well as access to the back catalogue of episodes. And if you want to learn more about 2022's Bird of the Year, you should listen to an awesome episode about rock wren from January 2020, in which Alison Balance visits South Westland to join a nest survey. We'll link that episode on the bottom of the webpage and we'll also post it on Facebook and Twitter where you can find us at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for following the podcast. Remember, there are lots of other great RNZ podcasts on a whole range of topics for you to explore and enjoy. I can highly recommend one of the latest releases, Now My Town. Justine Murray takes us around Aotearoa to learn about different place names and their origins. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai tō wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 